The Pre-Med Year, session number 344. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to the Pre-Med Years. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. I have an awesome guest for you today, someone who you may know from Instagram. She is the female doc on Instagram, Dr. Ruzira Khan, also known as Rosie. And we're going to talk about her journey to medicine, her journey as an osteopathic physician, as an attending physician at a well-known great allopathic school, kind of quashing some, some DO myths out there and much more. Let's go ahead and jump in, say hello to Rosie, and I'll talk to you on the other side. Rosie, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. I'm so excited. <laughs> Making your pre-med years debut. That's on everybody's <laughs> bucket list. Yep, it definitely is. (laughs) Let's start with my most favorite question. When did you realize you wanted to be a doctor? Ah, that's a good question. It was in my childhood. Uh, My mom is a doctor. She does not practice in the United States. She practiced in Pakistan. And growing up, I kind of used to flip through all of her books and she had this pathology book and uh, all the slides were in pink and purple. (laughs) And I loved flipping through those pictures. And then of course, when you're a little girl and you tell people you want to be a doctor, there's a lot of positive reinforcement. And I just kind of grew up knowing that this is what I was going to do. And I did everything in my power to get there. So it worked. (laughs) And here you are now. Here I am. What was the most challenging path for you or part for you of the the pre-med journey? Oh, definitely. Definitely coming to terms with my scores, my extremely low scores, and uh, continuing to push forward. I didn't, I had a little bit of a backup plan, but not really. And I just kind of, kept going. And I started to explore osteopathic medicine and my pre-med peers had a lot of pushback and and several of them delayed applying because they didn't, you know, they didn't want to be a DO. God forbid. Yeah. That's not a real doctor. Right. Exactly. And, And I got strange answers like, oh, well, I want to be a sports medicine doctor, so I can't be a DO. And at the time, I was like, I don't know what the hell you guys are talking about. Um, but I was very lucky that one of my family friends, she became a mentor to me. She went to Western University and was a practicing family physician, osteopathic doctor. So I got to shadow her and I knew there was no difference. And so I was, I knew there was stigma, and but I figured... I would rather take the stigma than take more years off. Yeah. But do you want to be a doctor or do you not want to be one? Yeah, exactly. And in in fact, the girl who told me 
that she wanted to be a sports medicine doctor. I don't think she ever made it to medical school. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I have, I have no idea what she's doing now, but change in plans. Yeah. So let's, yeah. let's talk about your scores on your Instagram account. You recently came clean about some of your pre-med struggles. What, uh, why, why was that number one so hard for you to talk about and, and be open about? And, and number two, what do you think it was for you to, to be so hesitant to talk about your scores? I was so afraid of talking about my scores, mostly because they're embarrassing. And on Instagram, it's a public forum. And I don't want my patients who are searching for me or looking for reviews to come across my Instagram and then realize that I did terribly in undergrad and think that I might be a worse doctor. Which I don't think is the would happen, but uh, you know, I, I lecture nationally about the legalities of social media and uh, being a practicing physician, and that is not advice I would give anyone to say, "Hey, yeah, just share it." But I, I recently shared just little snippets of it because I thought it was so important for pre-med students to realize and. What's interesting is this generation has a huge, I don't know how to describe it, but there's just this comparison culture Mm. and they don't look at the real statistics of what's going on in medical schools and what the numbers are. It's just like, you know, doctor wannabe so-and-so on Student Doctor Network said that if you don't have a 3.8 or if you have one C on your transcript, you might as well forget it. And so a lot of that misinformation was one of the driving reasons why I put it on there. Do you think it's new, that culture? I do. I do. Because when I was applying in 2003, I just had Student Doctor Network. And then a lot of the average MCAT and GPA scores were in books. Mm -hmm. I remember going to Barnes & Nobles and there was a published book with every single medical school with the average scores in there. And I had to purchase that book. Yeah. The, the MSAR that's now online used to be a physical book. Exactly. I, I guess that's where it originated. Yeah. I, I couldn't remember the book. I, I think I sold it the, the year after I got it. <laughs> but um, yeah, the, the comparison culture wasn't as bad. I mean, Facebook had just started and you needed a .edu email address to even join. Um, so, I mean, I was kind of comparing myself to my peers, but people were a little bit secretive, too, about their scores and where they were at. So now with the everything on the Internet, it's like an explosion of, oh, well, you know, this person didn't get in and they had a 3.8 and the 45 MCAT score. And I don't understand if they don't get in, then I can't get in. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of stuff just is all over the internet. Yeah. And unfortunately, students think it's it's the stats that are driving it. I, I talk about it all the time now. I talked to a student recently who had a 3.9 and a 5.19 and didn't get any interviews. And so if that student were to go post on Reddit or Student Doctor Network or any public forum, 
it would freak everyone out. Like, well, if if yeah. you have those stats, then then I'm screwed, right? My 3.7 exactly. and 5.10 are terrible and I'm never going to get in. And students continue to fail to realize that you are more than your stats. And this student in particular had zero clinical experience and zero shadowing and and didn't have a lot of activities in general. She focused only on her grades and her MCAT score and medical schools don't want that. Right. Exactly. What was the pre-med culture like at your school? Uh, it was pretty cutthroat. It was bad. <laughs> it was really bad. Um, my biology professor, you know, you first start college and I'm sure I, a lot of people got this lecture, but it's like, you know, look to your right, look to your left, <laughs> and then look at the three students in front of you, and then the three students behind you, and only one of you is going to make it. You I know, very that. dramatic. Yep. You got that one too, didn't you? Of course. I, I used that in a in a talk recently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I talk about it all the time. It was just, I don't know. And and it it kind of was true. There were There were some of my peers that started off as pre-med, but I don't know. A lot of people start off pre-med too because of the status. Yep. And uh, it's, you know, it's a prestigious profession. And so it feels good to say, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. But at the end of the day, the actual profession isn't so glamorous and getting through all of the rigorous work isn't glamorous. So um, it does weed out some some people, but I, I don't think it weeds out people in a sense where it's like we're trying to absolutely crush your dreams and your soul. Yeah. Although professors like my biology professor definitely tried to do that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you saw my Instagram recently. I, I posted something about uh, a student who got feedback from her advisor saying a oh, I think it was a, a five ten yeah MCAT I, I score. Saw that one. And and the advisor's like, yeah, you shouldn't apply to medical school. Your like your chances aren't going to be good. And she has a sub score, a subsection score that was pretty low, but not not horrendous. And I was like, this ridiculous. And so I posted on Instagram, and so many people DM'd me saying, this is what my advisor said, and this is what my advisor said. And I'm just like, this is I need to I need to fix that. So that's my new mission in life is to is to get um, in front of more advisors and help them see that their students don't have to be perfect. So. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that because my, my advisor also wasn't very encouraging. I was kind of like, Oh man, mm-hmm. you really got to start thinking about other careers. And I was like, okay, well, yeah. thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> thanks and no thanks. <laughs> See ya. I won't come back to you. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, it's so common. So for you, when you were getting your scores and you're going through this process, and you're like, Oh, this is, this is going to be hard. And you start to look at osteopathic schools. Did you only apply to DO schools or did you try to apply to MD schools as well? Yeah, what was interesting was that I applied to four DO schools, uh, Chicago, Arizona, Western, and Toro. And I applied to, I think, 12 MD schools, but I did not apply, complete any of the secondaries for the DO, uh, MD schools. So I essentially only applied to DOs, the four DO schools, which was, it was a little crazy to only apply to four. Yeah. But why did you prematurely end your MD applications? 
I had this feeling that it was just going to be a waste of money and that they weren't going to really take me seriously. It was going to be harder for me to sell to them my journey. And I was also a terrible writer. <laughs> and I was maybe maybe a little bit of laziness too. I, I just, writing those secondary essays was so painful. <laughs> it was just so painful for me. So yeah. 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 I, I remember the second time I applied to medical school and, and when you applied, when I applied, this is, this is old school, right? We had paper uh, yes. secondaries. Oh. <laughs> Kids these days, they don't understand. Miserable. <laughs> it was so miserable. Yeah. Every, I had to send, send out like copies of everything individually to each osteopathic school in a yeah. manila envelope. Oh. It was miserable. <laughs> yeah. I guess I thank you for reminding me. Yeah. I, maybe it wasn't laziness. It was just a lot of hard work. It was work just a lot. Time. Yeah. I remember when I applied the second time, I was living in Colorado. And then I went and coached baseball at summer camp up in Maine. And I can still picture to this day, the stack of secondary essays and, and paperwork sitting in my cabin at camp going, yeah, I'm not going to do those. <laughs> it's just yeah, like exactly. not going to happen. And luckily I did the one secondary. I don't know how many I, I ended up filling out, but the, the one of them that I did was the one that I got into. So, oh, that was the good old days. The good old days. So I'm glad those are gone. Yes. And that people, I mean, it's nice because people like you and me are preparing students ahead of time. You know, instead of waiting for the secondary essays to roll through, why not start pre-writing them now? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So secondaryapps.com. That's where you get yeah. all the questions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got a nice, nice little database going there. Yes. More Great. more fun stuff coming on there too. So gotta I saw, I saw on your Instagram. I'm excited. <laughs> Lots of fun stuff coming. Yeah, um, so you you essentially apply to four DO schools. How yes. many interviews did you get? I got two. Okay. At Western University and Toro. Okay. And I eventually got waitlisted at Western and uh I got into Toro. And I tell this to my Instagram followers and my current pre-med students all the time that you only need one. It only takes one. You just one. need one yes. And then boom, you're in. That's it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I, I'll, I'll never forget, like I, I, as a Florida Gator where I went to undergrad, watching Tim Tebow, the quarterback, come out and, and try to get into the NFL. And everybody's like, you're not going to be an NFL player. He goes, it only takes one team to, to believe in me. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's all it is. So no matter where you are in life, it only takes one. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. crazy. What was the, the most memorable part of part of medical school for you? Oh, I I'm a little bit of a nerd. I really enjoyed medical school. Um, the first two years were, I mean, they, it was an emotional up and down, but I thought they were fun, like learning anatomy and. Yeah, you're a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I was miserable the first two years. Really? Yeah. Oh my God. I really enjoyed it. I really did. Why do you think that? Well, Toro University had an excellent curriculum in that they did block scheduling. So it was painful, but we would have 10 exams in, 
in one week. So two <laughs> tests per day. <laughs> and we would do that um, about three times a semester. Wow. And so we were able to absorb the material over, let's say, a course of five weeks. And balance for me is everything. And it's still a huge part of my life. So the first two weeks of learning the material, I didn't feel completely stressed out. I was just, you know, leisurely going through notes. And then I would take the entire weekend off. And sometimes I would fly home to LA and hang out with my parents and then go back up. And so the the curriculum structure worked very well for my type of learning style and uh, and then I would really cram like two to three weeks before the exam. So the first two weeks, kind of having a light load really helped me balance my life. Now, I know a lot of schools aren't structured like that. And it's like you have a test every week. So after you're done studying for one test, then you're just cramming for the next test. And then it kind of repeats. So you get burned out. Yeah. I think that's what, Yeah. It was a Jewish school too, so we had Sabbath, and so Friday. Yeah, lots of holidays at a Jewish school. Oh, it was it was. <laughs> I had I had five day weekends all the time. Um, I mean, it, it ended up being that we had more stuff to cover during the actual school days, and I think our summer break was shorter too to make up for that. But I like that balance of just kind of spreading it out. Yeah, my class was 135 or 136 people. And um, most of them were cool. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed hanging out with them. Yeah. We had fun. It was a fun, fun little crew. Did you know when you were applying to Toro, did you know about their curriculum and that block scheduling? Or was that just something that you found out later? I think I find, found that out later. <clears throat> yeah. And I didn't, I didn't realize how beneficial it was specifically for my learning style until I got into rotations with Western University students. And they were they were confused because they were like, no, we had a test every week. I was like, oh, I kind of liked that I had 10 tests in one week, but five weeks to learn it all. Although, you know, for severe procrastinators, that just would never work. Yeah. So I guess it really depends on your, your learning style. Yeah. And that's why I stress so much when when students are picking medical schools don't don't look at the MCAT and GPA look at everything else and make sure that the school fits you including the curriculum mm-hmm. yeah exactly so important western university is down the street from me mm-hmm. so that was actually my first choice just because logistically it would have been very easy for me i wouldn't have had to move away um cost wise I just would have saved so much money, yeah. but um, I mean, I didn't have a choice. I got waitlisted, so whatever, <laughs> yeah. but it, it, worked, it out worked out very well for me. Yeah, it worked out very well for me. Yeah, very cool. When did you realize the, the specialty that you were interested in? When did that come along? I got interested in critical care during my rotations, my medical school rotations, about third and fourth year. Um, The critical care attending at the time, he's since retired, was incredible. He was incredibly bright, uh, a wonderful teacher, and 
most of all, he demonstrated a great deal of empathy towards his patients and a lot of, and he emphasized a lot of dignity in the dying process. He, he stressed that that was so important to die with dignity. And that's something that I don't see as often anymore in our profession, mm -hmm. unfortunately. But uh, so that kind of really excited me and the rigors of, you know, ICU. It, it was, it's a very exciting environment. But then when I became an intern, I did my IC rotation and just about died of exhaustion. And I was like, there is no way I'm doing a fellowship ever. Like this just isn't for me. But I think as an intern, everything is so new. You're stressed out. Uh, the workload is a lot. Um, so eventually, once I, I got better at just being a doctor, um, things got easier. And then I revisited the thought my third year of residency. And at the time, you had to apply two years in advance if you wanted to go to fellowship directly. Uh, so I would have had to take a gap year, but I decided to apply anyways. And I, I was getting more and more frustrated with some of our other attendings who did not show the empathy I think our patients and their families deserved. Mm -hmm. And it was irritating me. And I thought, you know what, I can't just, I can't be a hospitalist and just end it here. I have to keep going. So that's what kind of finally pushed me. And I applied. And so I got in for the following year. But what was interesting was that um, I, I'm a little bit of a hustler. So I stalked my program director <laughs> for several months asking and letting him know that, hey, I was available. I hadn't signed a hospitalist contract yet. So if anyone drops out for this year, let me know. And, and I don't think students realize how much more casual fellowships can be. And I think this is illegal now, but at the time as a DO, I could sign outside of the fellowship match. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. And people drop out of fellowships all the time for various reasons like, oh, you know, it's just, I don't want to go through it. Or, oh, I decided I wanted to do something else. Or this job contract was too juicy and financially it was better for me and my family. So pe people drop out. So I stocked my program director and then. And uh, he, it, someone ended up dropping out, so I was able to go right away after residency. Nice. Yeah. Talking about your rotations in medical school, you talked about having a mentor who was just amazing and you loved it. And I think that a lot of students don't put enough emphasis on the interactions they have with those mentors, with the attendings, that it's like, oh, this is an amazing specialty. Maybe not because I love the specialty so much, but that that mentor is amazing. And I wonder if if when you became an intern and you're in the ICU, you didn't have that same sort of mentorship there. And you're like, oh, this sucks, right? I, this isn't as fun as I remember it being. No, because it was still with the same attending. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I was just exhausted. Okay. And it's it's very different being a medical student versus being an intern. Because an intern you're 100% responsible for writing the orders, you know, 
transfer paperwork, all of that stuff. So I think it was just an overwhelming time for me. And I'm trying to learn procedures and things like that. So it was a lot to take in, I think, just as an intern. But my my little, my passion for it never really died down. But you're right that medical students sometimes don't foster those mentorship relationships because they feel like they're bothering the doctor. Mm-hmm. And uh, as an attending myself, I want to say that I love getting feedback and follow-ups because then I really feel like, okay, I need to keep going and what I'm saying makes a difference because attendings get burned out too. Mm-hmm. You know, teaching takes a lot. And it's not just, you know, you guys are writing the notes for us and then we just sign off at the bottom. But it's actually double the work for us because we we want to document things in a very specific way for billing and le- legal reasons. But then we have to go back and check your work and make sure everything's okay. So it does take a lot of work. So it's it's very rewarding when you see your trainees succeed in any in any way or that you've impacted them in some way. So I love getting follow-ups. Yeah. What was the impetus for you to start an Instagram account and put your your life on Instagram? <laughs> What's interesting is I started it maybe in 2014 and it started as me not wanting to be a doctor anymore. <laughs> I was so burned out after fellowship that I decided I wasn't going to be a doctor anymore uh, and that I was going to rekindle my love of web development that I had done throughout high school and a little bit of college. So I took some courses on WordPress and CSS, HTML, JavaScript, all that stuff. You are a nerd. I am a total nerd. (laughs) My (laughs) kind of people. (laughs) Yeah. So I relearned all of that and thinking that this was going to be my new career. Uh, But of course, I got a job as a critical care physician because I needed to pay off my student loans and the money was good. So I thought I would just do both and then eventually let go of the doctoring thing. Um, But eventually I came out of my burnout and then I remembered why I loved being a critical care doctor so much. And I was like, no, I, I love this. And then I... Lean In had just came out. It's a book by Sheryl Sandberg. Mm-hmm. She's the COO of Facebook. It came out in 2013. And I really resonated a lot with that book about women in the workplace. And so I wanted to apply that to women in medicine. And I started this blog called femaledoc.org. It's no longer there. I've changed it now to the femaledoc.com. With the intent of creating a social network for women in medicine to... Uh, connect so that women in medicine can connect on a deeper level and kind of talk about workplace issues. Mm -hmm. Was this before PMG was out or after? I think me and Hala started at about the same time. Okay. Yeah. Hala and I went to residency together. Oh, awesome. I love Hala. Yeah. So she she was doing, yeah, she's great. She was doing uh, emergency medicine residency and I was doing internal medicine at the same hospital. So we knew each other well. um, And she had started, yeah, PMG 
on Facebook and uh, she invited me to kind of take a look too. And we were both kind of starting things. And so PMG blew up and it, yeah. it took on a whole new life and it's, it's a great, great group. But my little measly website was not taking off the same way and it wasn't getting enough traffic. So then I looked into social media marketing and that's kind of where I stumbled across Instagram. But then as I continued to do different lectures at these national conferences, like on contract negotiation for women, I noticed that everyone at the end of the lecture wanted to know very specifically what I did. And so I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll just switch it to a blog where I'm just talking about my experiences and giving my advice. And then that's kind of when I switched it to the female doc and Instagram kind of exploded after that. Let's talk about your burnout and what do you think caused it and how did you get through it? Burnout... I think is to there's two aspects to burnout. One is a, a systemic burden where physicians just aren't taken care of. Any healthcare provider, physicians, nurses, PAs, etc. And then the other aspect is individual recognition and understanding self-care. Because doctors are are trained to go, to just go, 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 go. And that's it. And put others before yourself. Exactly. And so if you weren't studying 24 seven, then you were doing something wrong, right? Like it's almost like shame, shame that you're taking an afternoon off. Mm -hmm. So it's like the culture gets so ingrained in you, especially when you're starting as a pre-med. I mean, you're taking all these hardcore courses and then everyone's telling you that you're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. You have to do more and more and more and more and more. So this whole culture kind of gets ingrained in you and then you stop taking care of yourself. And then on a systemic level, it's, I mean, the hours, the night shift is insane. (laughs) And and since I've been a resident, they've changed a lot of the hours and the hour restrictions and things like that. So it's gotten a little bit better. Um, but critical care physicians and ER physicians have the highest rates of burnout at 55%. And even though I am very well versed in burnout, I'm a burnout thought leader, I've published on burnout, it still creeps up on me. And once I get out of the situation, then I'm kind of like, oh crap, I was really burnt out. Because some of the symptoms can be just very subtle. You know, it's not always this extreme where you're completely jaded and all of this. Like for a while, I just wasn't getting good sleep. I didn't know why. I couldn't recognize it, but it was burnout. And what did you do to get through it? I made dramatic changes and choices. Um, a lot of people make decisions based on their finances. And I didn't do that because I didn't care. I was like, forget it. You cannot pay me enough money to work that, that way. 
So my first job out of fellowship, I negotiated no night shifts. And um, it was a seven on, seven off model, shift model. So it was only day shifts. And eventually I came out of my burnout because I had plenty of rest in between. And the night shifts were destroying me because my fellowship was grueling. We were on call every three days, 27 hours. And I did that about eight months a year mm. and for two years. And it was just, it was too much. And so I, so that's what I negotiated. And now coming into academic medicine, I took a huge pay cut, but knowing that my lifestyle was going to be better because a lot of the critical care groups in Southern California do a lot of night shifts. And I knew that just wasn't going to work for me. So I took a huge six-figure pay cut, but I did that knowing other areas in my lifestyle that I could cut back on. And I, I've, I've been very smart with my money. So but a lot of people panic and decide that, no, they have to work, continue to work like a dog to make money to continue to pay for nice furniture or nice car or whatever. And then for me, I decided that that wasn't as important to me. My rest was much more important than, you know, I don't know, a fancy lifestyle. Yeah. And that's, that's I think, the most important part is is being self-aware to know what you want and and being okay with with churning down some money and being sensible and, and responsible with money to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, I'm glad you, you got through your burnout. Now you're a DO and you're yep. on faculty at a relatively prestigious <clears throat> allopathic medical school and academic center. What is it like mm-hmm. if it, when a medical student potentially sees you and like, wait a minute, you're a DO. How can you be my, my uh, attending? How does that work? I have actually never gotten that. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I don't think medical, I don't think anyone notices. Yeah. You know, after, I, I think this whole DO thing is, is the thing that pre-meds and maybe med students kind of keep alive. But once you're in residency and fellowship, like no one's paying attention. You know, whether you go to Ross, St. George's, Toro, Western, whatever school you went to that has some sort of stigma, people just stop caring. I work with several of my colleagues, our DOs as well at USC, and it's not, I mean, no one bats an eye. Most of the time, people just assume you're an MD, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you have to cross it out. Like, no, Dio. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. For the pre-med student who is is not considering applying to osteopathic school. Right? I, I had a, a meetup last week and was talking to a, a pre-med student and her stats aren't the best. And I was like, well, are you, are you applying to DO schools just to increase your overall chances, right? And I, I prefaced it with, even if you have a 515, I would still recommend applying to DO schools just to increase your chances of getting in. Um, and she's like, no, I'm, I'm not applying to DO schools. And um, the, the reasoning behind that didn't really make sense to me. But what would you tell a student like that who is, is just not considering DO for one reason or another? I think a lot goes into that decision or 
where it's an absolute no. And I think a lot of it is the status and the culture. Uh, specifically, like uh, coming from a Pakistani and Indian background, it was it was a big stigma. And people would ask my parents, like, what school? You know, when my parents were like, oh, she got into medical school and, you know, she's at Toro University. They'd be like, what? What's that? Yeah. You know, so it, it's very status driven. But at the end of the day, it's like all I want to do is help people and. I get paid a boatload of money to do it. It's not like my MD colleagues um, get paid any better than me. And I've there weren't opportunities that went missed because, you know, I'm a DO. So, uh, you know, after a while, people just stopped asking. I, I think once you're once you're done with medical school, it is a little bit painful though to hear people talk about your school that way or that you're not really going to be a doctor, but soon you start to realize that those people are going to complain and say something no matter what you're doing because they don't want to see you succeed, yeah. quite frankly. So you could be at Harvard Med School and they would say like, oh yeah, but you know, your sweater has a hole in it or I don't know, <laughs> they would find something. Wash you better. Poke at you for, it. yeah, exactly, something like that. Yeah, how do you shut those kind of people out? I I was just so focused on trying to be the best doctor that I could be, and I was having fun learning everything. And um, one thing I noticed med students do a lot, even pre med students, is they're already stressed out about residency and fellowship, and. I'm like, man, you want to, why don't you just try getting into medical school first? Because <laughs> you know, pre-med steps. students, especially the ones, <laughs> especially the ones who shy away from going to DO school think that they can't be some prestigious, you know, orthopedic surgeon or neurosurgeon or something like that. But you're not going to be an orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgeon if you don't get into medical school, period. Like, it's just never even going to be an option. At least open up the door to that path. Like, why are you already closing off doors to to being a, a, a surgeon or, or whatever it is that, that the stigma is that's holding you back? And, you know, honestly, the ones who are absolutely like, no, I'm never going to do it. I, I don't want to do it. And, and there's been some... Um, I guess residents and, and yeah, residents who went to the Caribbean and I've asked, oh, well, why didn't you apply to DO schools? And they said, well, I just didn't want to be a DO. And, and I still don't understand that answer because I don't, I, I still don't know why. Yeah. Don't worry. They don't, don't know why it. either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's mostly just status, but yeah. like you just need to get over that. Yeah. A physician is a physician is a physician. Yep. Yeah. My paycheck is just as juicy as my <laughs> colleagues. <laughs> yeah. So for a student out there who is struggling on their path, what words of wisdom and encouragement do you have for them? I would just remind them that I am not special. I used to be just like them. But the only difference is I just chose to keep going and I just chose to apply anyways. 
and go through the learning process. And my, my motto for so long has been done is better than perfect. And I think a lot of students start pushing off years and years and years because they're trying to make this perfect application. Whereas if they just start applying, they'll start learning what is necessary. Like you mentioned that student who had a whatever, 3.9 and a 517 MCAT score who didn't get in, but they learned from that process because they you they didn't have any shadowing experience, no volunteering, nothing like that. So now they know, okay, well, I need to do that. I mean, there's better ways of learning that, like contact, contacting you. Um, but yeah, I would definitely tell pre-meds to just do it. Like, who cares? Where can students find you online to, to get more? Yeah, they can find me on my blog, thefemaledoc.com or on Instagram, the female doc. All right, so there you have it. Again, Dr. Ruzira Khan, or Rosie as she is known. Go follow her at the female doc on Instagram and go tell her that you heard her here on the Pre-Med Years podcast. I hope you got some great information out of the episode today, hopefully quashing some myths about osteopathic schools, osteopathic physicians, and much more. Don't forget to subscribe to The Pre-Med Year so that you get our podcast for free every week. And new, go subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'm Medical School HQ on YouTube as well. This past week, we launched our first video of what will be hopefully weekly YouTube videos, if not more. We have a special series coming out called Application Renovation that will be coming out to more than weekly, I think, or something like that. But yeah, go go check us out on YouTube, Medical School HQ there as well. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.